Have you been struggling to make solid cinematic films? Do you watch other filmmakers and wonder why their products look so good? You need training. Good, specialized training. Something that is easy to digest and that you can take safely at home. I'm not talking about college. I'm talking about full-time filmmaker. Parker Wallbeck and his team have put together an amazing course with over 400 training videos. Everything from Wedding Video Pro with Jake Weisler to how to edit with Premiere or Final Cut. Imagine getting proper, real-world training you can do at home. Imagine the impact that would have on your work, your skills increase, your quality increases, and then so do your prices. Click on our affiliate link below, take the free online training on their top 10 secrets to achieving cinematic shots, and see what full-time filmmaker can do for you. We did it, and it propelled our business. Welcome to the Wedding Filmmaking for Beginners podcast. I'm your host, Phil Beabout, and today we are discussing part one of a two-part series on why your image stinks and what you can do to fix it. So we have this broken down into four different parts. Today, we're going to be discussing exposure, and then in the next episode, we're going to be discussing white balance, color correction, and focus. So let's get started with uh, exposure. So first, you're going to need to understand what exposure is, how to use your aperture, how to use ISO, uh, how to use your shutter speed, how they all affect your image, and then also how to use the tools on your camera to monitor and adjust your exposure. So you, you're probably saying to yourself, like, why are these things important? And you've probably watched videos with people that have these just amazing images that are coming out of their camera. You've probably seen people's videos that they post in groups. I know I have where somebody's dress is white or the shadows are crushed or the highlights are blown out and probably thought to yourself like, oh, that would have been a really cool shot, but the sky is pure white, you know, things like that. And I, I want to kind of walk through today what you can do to stop that from happening when when you're out in the field and shooting uh, so you know it's it's little things like have you ever looked at your image and wonder why there's so much noise in it or have you ever wondered uh how people get such clean and balanced images well we're, we're going to discuss all of that and first thing that we want to do is just kind of go over exposure and what that is. So exposure is literally the amount of light that is hitting your sensor. So it is controlled by three camera settings. So three things are affecting the amount of light that's hitting your sensor. You have your ISO, you have your aperture, and you have your shutter speed. So aperture controls the amount of light that's coming in through the lens. So that's the dial that's opening and closing. Some people call it the f-stop. That's that's just, you know, it's it's what's opening and closing to allow light in or allow more light or less light in. So the higher the aperture, the less light is coming in. The lower the aperture, the more light is coming in. So right now I am filming this on a uh, f2.8 on a full frame, you know, uh, 
Panasonic S5. So that aperture is the biggest that it can be because we're in a dark room and we're trying to allow as much light as possible to come in. So, uh, you know, if you have your cameras on and you're moving the aperture up and down, you can physically watch the blades open and close. The big thing to remember with aperture is that affects your depth of field. So the higher the aperture that you have, the less depth of field that you have. So more things become in focus uh, as you go up in aperture. So theoretically, the back back here behind me should be... Uh, a little out of focus because we're at the lowest aperture. Now, if we bump this up to like an F10, then everything around me would be in focus. So if we look at shutter speed, shutter speed also controls the amount of light that's hitting the sensor in that if the shutter speed is increased, it allows less light in because the shutter is moving faster than the light rays that are coming in. So it, it allows less light to hit the sensor because the shutter is, you know, moving so fast. Why that is important is shutter speed affects motion blur. So most of us are used to watching movies, you know, from Hollywood. We're used to seeing, you know, true cinema movies where they're shooting at 24 frames a second and then their uh, shutter speed is set to 50. So, you know, you always have that 180 rule. So if your shutter speed is 24, then theoretically, I mean, you're, if your uh, frame rate is set to 24, then your shutter speed should be 48. But DSLRs and that kind of stuff, they, they don't offer 48, so it's at 50. If your frame rate is at 60, then you should be at 120. However, again, uh, DSLRs and stuff don't have 120, it's 125. So you want to keep your shutter speed double what your frame rate is so that you have motion blur. Now, if you increase your shutter speed beyond that to say a thousand, that will darken your image because there's less light coming in. However, that will also reduce motion blur and make your image look choppy. Now, for us, when we're shooting weddings, typically there is not that much motion or the motion is not like fast. So it's not somebody running, it's somebody running their hands through somebody's hair. So if we were to increase shutter speed, we know that we're going to lose motion blur. But if you're shooting at 60 frames a second and you've slowed it down, you wouldn't have a whole lot of motion blur to begin with. So it's still optically pleasing while you're, while you're looking at everything. Now, so that's two. So moving on to ISO. ISO is unique in that it is the only one out of the three that will actually uh, add light to your image. So shutter speed and aperture will make your image darker. ISO will make your image brighter. Why? So if you are moving your ISO into the higher ISO ranges, the downside of that is it creates noise. There's artifacts that start to come in and that kind of stuff. So you need to understand your camera's native ISO. 
So right now we're shooting on a Panasonic S5. The native ISO, it's got dual native ISO, but the, the native that we're shooting at right now is 640 because we're shooting in vlog. So it's important that you understand that and that you understand that as you increase ISO, you also introduce uh, noise into your image. So while aperture and shutter speed make your image darker, ISO makes it brighter. However, all of them have a downside to using one or the other. So remember, aperture decreases depth of field, shutter, spree, shutter speed affects your motion blur, and ISO introduces noise. So you need to uh, figure out which one, it's called a triple, triple constraint. So you need to figure out which one you're willing to live with, you know, in post-production, like what, what are you willing to, to sacrifice? Now, you're probably asking, well, how do I monitor exposure then? If you have all these different values and you have all these things going on, like how can we truly monitor our exposure? And a lot of cameras have tools that are built in to help you with just that. You have histograms, waveforms, EV meters, zebra striping, that kind of stuff. And I'm going to kind of walk through each one of them right now, but a histogram uh, shows your shadows and highlights in a left to right value. So imagine a rectangle. Uh, the far left side is your shadows. The far right side is your highlights. Now, if you push your image one way or the other, that shows you that it's either underexposed or overexposed. So imagine a hockey stick. If a hockey stick is laid down and the curve is going to the right, then that's what that'll look like on a histogram if your image is overexposed because all the data is pushed over to the right and then vice versa. If the hockey stick is going the other direction and it's to the left, then you can clearly see that all your data has been pushed. What you want to see is what looks like a mountain with peaks and valleys that's in the middle with nothing touching the left and not nothing touching the right. Um, I, out of all of them, I personally, I've drifted away from histograms because it's, I don't know, it's kind of confusing to me. I, I switched over to what we're going to talk about right now, which is a waveform. And that's what that's what we currently use right now to, to monitor our exposure is waveforms. But most every camera that I know of, like Canons and that kind of stuff, they all have a histogram in it. So that's one tool that's pretty universal. Uh, a waveform shows your exposure in an IRE value. So it's from 100 to zero. So that's that's your, your IREs. Now, uh, it goes top to bottom. So bottom being your shadows, top being your highlights. That, to me, just makes more logical sense when I'm looking at it. Like, I expect to see the highlights high and the shadows low. That's just kind of how I, I visualize it. Uh, if you have things that are crushed into the top and it turns into a solid white line across the top, then you know that your highlights are being crushed or they're being, you know, you're blowing them out. And the same thing for your shadows. If it's crushed all the way down, you'll see a solid line going across the bottom, which means that your your shadows are being, are being crushed. So you want to keep a good balance in between it. 
You want to keep your midtones in the middle between like 45 IRE to like 60 IRE. Like that's that's typically where skin tones range. So you want to make sure your midtones are cruising through that through that middle upper middle piece of a waveform. The uh, some cameras have waveforms. I know GH5s do. G you know with the S5 does like the Panasonic family does. That's what we're used to. Uh, and then also certain monitors have it too. So we have a Field World uh, LUT7, and we have two of them, and they both have waveforms built into it. So you can you can use that tool uh, on the monitor. Next is zebra striping. I. I like zebra striping because it gives you like a visual representation of what's overexposed right on your image. So if you're using a monitor, if you're looking in the, you know, the back of the, the LCD of the camera, you can clearly see that something is overexposed because you have these diagonal lines that are just going through it. Now, what happens is once an image goes above a certain IRE, that the zebra striping kicks in and you, you start to see those lines. Most of the time that number is customizable. So you can just, you can put it to whatever you need. In vlog, if you are going over 80 IRE, your image is blown out. So I have zebra striping turned on on all of our cameras that are using vlog to show at 80 IRE. So I can clearly see that that image is overexposed and I know that I need to do something to bring my exposure down to pull my highlights back down into a range that are not going to be blown out. And that is really, really helpful because you don't really need to think about it too much. As soon as you look down to start to shoot, you can see all these lines going through stuff and being like, oh, you know, the bride's face is overexposed. There's white lines going through it. So let me, let me bring my exposure down. And just like with waveforms, some cameras have it, some cameras don't. Uh, I know all Panasonics do, uh, you know, probably the newer Canons do. I know our old Canon didn't, but, um, you know, a lot of cameras are, a lot of camera manufacturers are, are picking up the pace and they're starting to include this in their cameras. So zebras are really good. Waveforms are really good. Histograms are good too. There's nothing wrong with it. I just don't personally like a histogram. I think that a, the top to bottom visual representation of a waveform or being able to actually see something being, you know, like the, the zebra striping lines, I think is way, way more beneficial. So those are the ones that we that we use on a daily basis. All right, so once we come back from break, we're going to talk about what you need to do to fix your exposure and then what what we do and how we kind of go about it. So we'll we'll talk about those two points as soon as we come back from break. Do you still email a PDF for a contract? Are you struggling to remember who you sent files to or what those files were? You need a solid CRM, a customer relation management tool, a program that will send professional files and contracts all on your behalf. One that does not need to be printed, signed, and emailed back. Is this the Stone Age? You need HoneyBook. We've been using them for years now, and it increased our productivity by taking menial tasks and automating them. 
You can set up custom workflows to automatically send emails, payment reminders, thank you responses, etc. You can send brochures, questionnaires, and invoices too. We have three set up. One for when a couple inquires, one for after a call with a couple, and one for a booked wedding with nine steps. That saves us so much time on the back end. What would you do with more time? Spend more time with your family, spend more time working on creative projects, or just simply relaxing. Use our affiliate link below to save 50% on your first year. Go ahead, it's on us. Start saving time and money today. All right, welcome back from break. Uh, right now, we're going to talk about what you need to do to fix your exposure. So let's say that uh, you look down at your your monitor, or your camera, and you see that your histogram looks like a hockey stick all the way to the right, and zebra striping is just going nuts across an image. That tells you that your image is overexposed. So you need to reduce the amount of light that is coming into your sensor. So out of the three things that we talked about with aperture, shutter speed, and ISO, ISO adds light. So you know that ISO is not going to really be an option because you should be at your native ISO to begin with. So you should be, you should be around, I think 400 ISO is pretty standard across most cameras nowadays. I know with the GH5s and that kind of stuff, GH5S, the native ISO was 400. Uh, in these cameras and the S5s, it's 400 if you're not in vlog. So for us, it's 640 because we're in vlog and that's the lowest that we can go. We can't go underneath 640 in vlog. So you know that there are two things that you're going to have to manipulate, either your aperture or your shutter speed. So if you adjust your aperture, you know that you're going to lose depth of field. If you up, if you increase your shutter speed, you know that that's going to reduce motion blur. Um, in our, in our store, in our case, we typically go for increasing our shutter speed. The old school term for that is over cranking. The way that I understood it was back in the day, they physically cranked the, uh, camera. So if they needed to increase shutter speed, the person would have to crank faster. So they called it over cranking. You were over cranking the shutter. Uh, I think that that's true. You can fact check me on that one, but I know that you lose motion blur when you do that. And, but like I said earlier, I'm okay with losing some motion blur because for some of our shots, we're shooting at 4K 60. So when we're slowing them down, you're not going to have motion blur in it to begin with. I watched a video uh, that Gerald Undone did not too long ago and he was using a ruler that was spinning, but that ruler was spinning significantly faster than what someone is moving during a wedding. So while in his example, which was really good, if you didn't maintain, or if you went over uh, twice your frame rate, so if you went over 125, you were, you seen a significant change in motion blur with that ruler going around in a circle, but people aren't moving like that in our situation. So for most wedding filmmakers, cranking the shutter isn't going to really affect too much. Now, uh, 
if you didn't want to do that, you could purchase a ND filter, a neutral density, neutral density filter, which is like buying a pair of sunglasses and slapping them on your camera. We have Tiffin variable ND filters, which work. They work really well. It's if you're going from indoors to outdoors and doing some other things, like they kind of become a pain. Uh, we have used them on weddings. I'm not, you know, completely against using neutral density filters. I just, I find it easier and faster if I'm on my own shooting a wedding to not use an ND filter and just crank the shutter because I'm not constantly taking it off, putting it on, like trying to fumble around with it and that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, we do have NDs and, you know, we we have used them. They're not, I just don't think for wedding filmmakers, I don't think they're the end all be all thing. Everybody, you know, talks about like, oh, you need to buy 14 ND filters and do this. And I don't I think you're just fine with increasing the shutter speed. Uh, now, the other end of the spectrum is your, say, shooting at a reception and it your image is really dark well the only way there's the, the only way that you can really manipulate that image is a have a very low aperture lens so like 1.4 that kind of stuff because that's going to allow more light in or you need to increase your iso and the issue with increasing your iso is that introduces noise now if you are at a reception and you're trying to get shots and you could only afford an F4 lens and you have to crank up your ISO, then crank up your ISO. If, you know, it's much better to get the shot and then have to fix it in post-production than it would be to not have the shot at all. A really good example of that, it wasn't at night. Brittany and I were doing a wedding uh, on Cape Cod and the bride was doing a first look with her father and I got preoccupied with putting the father in place and that kind of stuff to where I didn't even hit record. So I didn't record anything of what was going on. Brittany hit record, but we had just come from doing something else. So her white balance, uh, was through the, her white balance was at like 6,000, so it gave this like weird blue cast to the entire image, but we had that one like two minute long clip that she had recorded like that. And I knew that I could go in and post and fix that, which we'll talk about in part two with color correction. But my big thing that I want to stress is always get the shot and then figure out like what, what you need to do later on to fix it. And the same thing comes into play with a darker image and increasing ISO because there are tools out there like Neat Video that will do a really good job of cleaning up the ISO and giving you a usable image by denoising it. If you're using DaVinci Resolve, I don't know if the free version has it. I know the studio version has it. Um, it has a noise reduction program in it that works really well. So there are plenty of tools out there that can uh, significantly improve the image if it is noisy. And always remember, if you're shooting a reception, 
and you're shooting dances, speeches, that kind of stuff, you should be using lights. You should never be relying on the venue's lights for your work. Like it's, I'll say this over and over again, but you always want to make sure that you're the master of your own destiny. So just kind of just circling back a little bit. What we like to do, like I said, I really like using waveforms. I use zebra striping. I put the zebra striping at uh, 80 IRE because I want to be able to see if I'm about to blow out my highlights when I'm in vlog. Um, you need to... In vlog too, you need to make sure that your shadows aren't crushed. I, I want to say they need to be over 12. That's kind of the general rule. So between uh, 80 and 12 IRE is where, where you should see everything in your waveform. Uh, I really do like just to, to over crank the shutter because, you know, like I've said about four times now, there's not a whole lot of motion in weddings. In fact, uh, you probably don't know what shutter speed, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, you probably don't know what shutter speed I'm in right now because I'm not moving that much to affect motion blur. So it's, you know, while I 100% understand why the rule is there, I also think that we need to understand how you can break the rule and how it affects you. So we, um, we crank our shutters for low light you know, we've between the GH5S and our two S5s, our cameras do really, really well at low light. So all of our cameras have dual native ISOs. The S5s is 4000 ISO is the, the high band for it. So we can, we can crank our ISO up and not really have too many issues when it comes to noise. So if we did not have that, well, even, even when we do, we still set up lights. I still use two core SWX uh, 250s. I think they're on 300s now, but we have the 250s. And I still use those for dances, speeches, that kind of stuff. We still light everything, even though our cameras can do low light really, really well. Um we always like to try to keep our ISO at their native values. We don't like to raise them above that because that gives you the most dynamic range. And, you know, like I said, I, I don't really like histograms. Uh, it's just a personal preference. It's nothing against the histogram. I'm sure plenty of people use it, but I just, I like the visual representation of the um, waveform. So big things coming out of this, just to kind of wrap everything together. You really need to understand your exposure you need to use the tools that we talked about, like waveforms, zebras, histograms, that kind of stuff. You really need to take advantage of those inside of your camera because that gives you a really good representation of where you're where you're at exposure-wise. Uh, you need to be mindful of how each thing, like aperture, shutter speed, impacts other pieces of your image, like depth of field and motion blur. And you need to make make a decision on which one that you're willing to sacrifice. For us, just it's motion blur, and I've I've said why, but we're we're willing to sacrifice a little motion blur. So in part two, we're going to talk about white balance. We're going to talk about color correction, and then we're also going to talk about focus. So those are the next three big things. Uh, 
So if you like this video, be sure to like and subscribe to us on YouTube. Be sure to join our private Facebook group, Wedding Filmmaking for Beginners, and subscribe to our podcast. Uh, again, thank you so much for, for being here. We, uh, we appreciate it. We hope everybody's staying safe, and we will see you in part two. All right. Bye. Are you looking at a really nice camera you can't afford? Are you wondering how companies afford six red Monstro 8K cameras and all the trimmings? You need to make more money so you can buy one. No, I'm kidding. You need to rent. Renting equipment is way easier than you think. You can ship it all back and forth from your house and it's way cheaper than buying. Best of all, you should include the rental cost in your pricing to pass on the expense because you're shooting with better gear. Wouldn't it be great to use something other than a Canon SL2 for your next project? Rent a Sony a7S 3 or a Canon 1DX Mark III. You don't need to buy them. We rent additional cameras, lighting gear, and audio equipment all the time from borrow lenses. We've never had a late shipment or anything other than an awesome experience with our customer service. Use our affiliate link below to get renting today and you'll have professional equipment tomorrow.